This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a senior reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, senior editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Sarah Ockwell-Smith discusses her new book, Gentle Discipline, Using Emotional Connection, Not Punishment, to Raise Confident, Capable Kids. Then PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot explores first quarter numbers from Barnes & Noble and Regnery's break with the New York Times bestseller list. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly Bestseller List, powered by NPD BookScan. So, uh, so here we are at the start of September. Yes. This is when we expect big books to start hitting the list. And in fact, we do have a new number one and number two on the hardcover fiction list. Right. Uh, number one is Glass Houses by Louise Penny. This is the 13th novel featuring Chief Superintendent Armand Gamache of the Sûreté de Québec. Uh, opens in a murder trial in a Montreal courtroom uh, in which a judge is trying her very first homicide case, and she thinks that something is wrong with Gamache's testimony. There's basically this courtroom drama, uh, plus a flashback with uh, involving an ominous costumed figure. There's quite a lot going on. And we say that the familiar, sometimes eccentric denizens of the town of Three Pines and Gamache's loyal investigative team help to propel the plot to an exciting, high-stakes climax. So uh, that's number one with a bullet, over 38,000 copies sold, according to BookScan. And uh, just below it at number two is The Right Time by Danielle Steele. We don't have a review of this. Uh, the publisher says it's filled with heartbreak and betrayal, triumph and fulfillment, and is an intimate, richly rewarding novel about pursuing one's passion and succeeding beyond one's wildest dreams. So, uh, in other words, it's a Danielle Steele novel. Um, this is certainly a, a vein that she has mined many times, mm. and uh, it always succeeds, and her fans will always snap it up. So that's at number two. At number seven, My Absolute Darling by Gabriel Talent. Uh, we say Room meets Rambo in this emotionally fraught first novel about a 14-year-old whose father uh, treats her like they live in a two-person survivalist camp. He teaches her how to shoot and hunt in the wild and also abuses and molests her. Mm. And uh, she goes to school, but she feels very cut off until she makes one friend who uh, f- forces her to question the way she's being raised. And we say in our review that uh, Martin, her father, is such an obvious creep that uh, readers will wonder why the adults he interacts with don't see through him. Uh, and the, the new friend doesn't really sound like a real teenager. But in the end, the story is still harrowingly visceral. And uh, so that's at number seven. At number 10 is Star Wars Phasma by Delilah S. Dawson. This is part of the series leading up to the uh, Star Wars The Last Jedi Mm. movie, exploring the backstories of various characters. This one gets into Captain Phasma, and uh, that's at number 10. And finally, uh, down at 21 is The Burning Girl by Claire Massoud. And uh, we say that uh, this novel is haunting and emotionally gripping uh, with uh, the 
the woman upstairs uh, was a clever, audacious portrayal of an untrustworthy protagonist. And this is uh, some of Masood's previous work. Um, and then this one is informed by the same sophisticated intelligence and elegant prose, but gaining new poignant depths. And uh, in this one, it's a, a, a novel about two young girls, inseparable since nursery school, who've drifted apart as they came of age, and uh, now they're brought back together. And uh, we say that uh, this novel reverberates with astute insights, though in some ways this simple tale is less ambitious but more heartfelt than Masood's previous work. So it definitely sounds worth picking up for yeah. fans of literary fiction. And that's what we've got on the hardcover fiction list. Well, we talked about a nonfiction before about the number of cookbooks that have appeared in our highest debut right now. Number eight is a cookbook. It's called The Perfect Cookie uh, by the editors of America's Test Kitchen. America's Test Kitchen always seems to have a book uh, appear on the bestseller list when they uh, first uh, uh, publish it. This one, uh, we gave a star review. We say a read through the comprehensive technique section will inspire new and seasoned bakers alike. I mean, this is 250 recipes for cookies, brownies, and uh, bars. We say here, this is a must-have for cookie lovers. So, uh, it's right there, number eight. Number ten, we have the Guinness Book of World Records 2018 Meet Our Real Life Superheroes. So, uh, they're kind of going on that little grab right there to, uh, sure. to all those real life superheroes right there. So, uh, number 10. So that's something I, I guess I haven't seen in a while, the Guinness Book of World Records, but um, people just pick up the hard copy. So that's, there you go. That's kind of a, a pleasant surprise in, yeah, it is. in the digital yeah. age. Yeah, exactly. I was thinking the same thing. Number 11, Grace Laced, Discovering Timeless Truths Through Seasons of the Heart by Ruth Chu Simmons. And uh, this is about, uh, the, in this book, there's about uh, the we don't have a review of it. Pretty florals and fanciful brushwork is about flourishing. With carefully crafted intention, this volume of 32 seasonal devotions from artist and author Ruth uh, Simmons encourages readers in any circumstance to become deeply rooted in God's faithful promise. So we, along with cookbooks, we have spiritual books. and um, Definitely a, an ongoing theme. Right, exactly. Along with, as we were talking about earlier, many conservative books. So we have at number 13... Chris Jericho, uh, WWE champion. He's a New York Times bestseller writer. No is a four-letter word, how I failed spelling but succeeded in life. And here he shares 20 of uh, his most valuable lessons for achieving goals and living the uh, life you want. And then we have at number 17, uh, Unseen, the gift of being hidden in a world that loves to be noticed. Uh, this is by Sarah Haggerty, suggests that this is exactly what God has intended. And we have another uh, spiritual book with, with that one. And uh, number 22, Life 3.0, Being Human in the Age of Artificial Intelligence by Max Tegmark. In our review, we say that robot takeover will ignite an explosion of awe-inspiring life, even if humans don't survive, according to this exhilarating, demoralizing primer. Uh, Tegmark, who's a physicist at MIT, surveys advances in artificial intelligence, such as self-driving cars and Jeopardy-winning software, but focuses on the looming prospect of recursive self-improvement, quote-unquote, AI systems that build smarter versions of themselves at an accelerating pace until their intellects surpass ours. We conclude, love it or hate it, it's an engrossing forecast. 
Finally, number 25, Home Where Everyone is Welcome, Poems and Songs Inspired by American Immigrants by Deepak Chopra. Uh, we don't have a review of this, but he includes poems, songs, words of wisdom from uh, cellists from the likes of cellist Yo-Yo Ma to Audrey Hepburn, Albert Einstein, and Celia Cruz. And that's what we have. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Sarah Ockwell-Smith tells us how gentle parenting benefits both kids and parents. We'll be right back. I'm Vanessa Panfil, the author of The Gang's All Queer, The Lives of Gay Gang Members, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Sarah Ockwell-Smith on the line. Her new book is Gentle Discipline, Using Emotional Connection, Not Punishment, to Raise Confident, Capable Kids. Hi, Sarah. So glad you could join us. Hi. Thanks so much for speaking to me. So before we talk about the book, let's talk about how the book got started. I mean, you're a psychotherapist and an instructor of infant massage and a birth doula. You also started the blog Gentle Parenting in the UK. How, how did this all come about? Um, really, when I had my own children. So my firstborn was born in 2002. And back then, the books that we had in the UK were very authoritarian. They were written by these experts who were quite scary. So I read these books and it made me just feel awful, to be honest. I doubted all the capability I had to be a parent. Um, I, I was searching for something else to help me, but the other books seemed to be too far the other way, sort of slightly too hippie on alternative. And I guess I just always had in my mind, you know, I wish this book existed. And, you know, fast forward 10 years and I thought, you know what, nobody else has written it. So I'm going to write that book that I wish that I'd read. So I started off as an author, just literally writing for myself. I didn't imagine that other people would read the book. I was imagining myself nine or 10 years previously. And everything kind of grew organically after that. My first book was about newborn babies. So then people said, you want a book about toddlers. So then I wrote the toddler book. And then they said, we want a book about sleep. So then I wrote the sleep book. And I, I, it, I don't have some sort of grand plan about what I'm going to do in five years' time or what comes next. I very much respond to what the parents that I speak to daily and I run workshops, they tell me what they want. And, you know, that's, that's what I write, really. So what exactly is gentle discipline, um, the subject of your current book? How would you define it? If you want the short answer, I always say I think it's mindful I think it's scientific and I think it's modern. So just those three words. If you want a longer answer, I would say it's focusing, you know, for about the last 200 years, most of our parenting experts um, and the advice they give hasn't really changed. It's still based on the advice that was out there in the 1850s. So and moving on right through to the 1950s, when we had people like John Watson and the behaviorists, um, very much sort of conditioning and controlling. So their advice was to control the child and not to mollycoddle them, so not to give them too much love. And that kind of punishment and rewards, conditioning, I don't know if you know of Pavlov's dogs and the classical conditioning and Watson's experiments with pigeons and ringing a bell and making them do things. That's kind of the mainstream approach to parenting that has really been kind of pushed, particularly in the last century. But there's very much a hangover in this century. Gentle discipline and gentle parenting is looking at the modern research, and that's really been coming out 
since I think probably the mid 90s, but particularly sort of the last 10 years, we're getting so much more research into the neuropsychology. We know how the styles of parenting and these methods impact kids. So it's evidence based and it's mindful of, you know, what science is telling us kids can do at each age. I talk a lot about brain development and what kids are capable of when they're one or 10 or 15. That underpins everything. And a lot of the traditional old school discipline is pitched far too high. So, for instance, a lot of mainstream traditional discipline techniques, if you were looking at what to do with a toddler, they treat toddlers as if they have the same capabilities as adults and they just don't. So dental discipline is really it's informed, it's mindful and it's also kind and compassionate. And we always say, really, it's about treating kids the way you'd like to be treated yourself. If you messed up, how would you like somebody to speak to you and teach you how to do it better? In the book, you you talk about the concepts of uh, empathy and respect, which I think ties into what you were just uh, talking about, how uh, as an adult, if you did something wrong, how you would like to be addressed. Talk about yeah. those ideals. So <laughs> the really basic thing is I think when parents buy a discipline book, they want to help grow their child into somebody who's nice, somebody who's kind, somebody who's compassionate, somebody who's caring, somebody who's polite, somebody who's confident. In order to get all of those skills in our children, we need to be them. If we want to raise a child who's kind, we need to be kind towards them. If we want to raise a child who's compassionate, it has to start with compassion at home. You know, discipline is um, all about teaching and learning. And we as parents are our children's first and best teacher. So it doesn't matter what they're taught at school. It doesn't matter, you know, what books or courses they read or go on. What really matters the most is who we are. If we are punitive, if we shame, if we yell, if we spank, we teach kids to disrespect other people. We teach them to yell. We teach them to hurt somebody when when they're angry with them. Just take it back to who do you want your kid to be? That's how you need to be with them. It's, you know, I, you know, I've been talking about this a long time. I find it so glaringly obvious, but for me, it really is that simple. I feel like a lot of adults who yell at children or raise their hands toward children um, are often struggling with their own feelings that they don't know how to deal with. How do you address that? Um, the not not the parent who says, "Well, as a matter of calm, collected discipline, I spank my kids," but the parent who uh, blows their top. Yeah, I think there's two reasons why that happens. So you have to look at the upbringing of the parents. So when you become a parent, I always say it's doubly hard because you're raising a child. But in a, in a way, you have to raise yourself as well. It makes you think about your own upbringing, particularly if you feel uncomfortable with something your parents did and you think, I want to do that better. You have to do a lot of introspection. So if you don't do that, and actually it's really hard work and sometimes it's really, really uncomfortable. If you don't do that, what happens is you go through this sort of cycle of unconsciously repeating what was done and said to you. Even, you know, this is what I was saying right back at the beginning about trying to be mindful, mindful of what you're saying and what you're doing and thinking, well, where does that come from? I often talk to parents and say, don't feel you have to discipline just because you would have been disciplined for doing that. Think about why. Just pause and stop and ask yourself, what do you hope to achieve from disciplining? It's really hard to break that kind of subconscious cycle of just 
repeating exactly what it was said and done to us. The second reason I think it's really hard is that we are so busy and so exhausted. You know, we do this thing called parenting, which is a, a full-time job and then some. And then we normally do full-time jobs or part-time jobs as well. And then we have to try and keep a household running. We have to try and keep it clean and tidy and cook good food and shop for the food. You know, we've got so much going on that if we're stressed, quite often because our kids have done something that's made us uncomfortable and we don't find a good outlet for that stress, what happens is we lose our temper and we yell and we shout and for some people, if they were raised with spanking, that's when the spanking will slip out, even if they don't want to spank their kids, because ultimately they haven't got a check on their own emotions. So it goes back to what I was saying about being a role model. The, the Perhaps the hardest part of parenting and gentle discipline is being aware of what you're feeling at any given moment in time and trying to change how you feel and how you're presenting your emotions in order to raise great kids. So do you give advice to parents on how, how to do that, especially with, with anger? Let's set aside the, the spanking, um, but, but, but like anger, how to um, maybe take a couple moments to collect themselves before uh, uh, addressing a child. I mean, how, what, what is your advice? You know, I, whatever I do, whether I'm writing a book, whether I'm running a workshop, whether I'm coaching somebody one-to-one, at least a quarter of what I say and do is all about self-care and looking at your own emotions. You know, it, it has to always start with a parent. So you've got kind of long-term coping strategies. So we'll talk through how can you fit just some time each day into looking after yourself. One of the most common things I suggest is that they download a meditation app on their phone and listen to it 10 minutes every day. That really can be life-changing for a parent. And, you know, this will sound really, really silly, but parents say to me, I don't even have time for that. So my answer is always, okay, so you go to the loo every day, right? You have a poo. And bear with me, this sounds really silly. <laughs> so if you can go to the loo in peace, hopefully if you don't have a toddler, and maybe you have a poo for five or ten minutes, take your phone in with you and listen to the meditation. And <laughs> you might I think they remember it. It's very practical. You, know, you have to literally just fit everything into every moment of time that you have. But even just that, that time when you may ordinarily read a newspaper or browse social media, that makes a big difference. If they can plan more time, that's even better. You know, it doesn't have to be expensive. They don't have to pay for it. They can go for a long walk once or twice a week. They can jog. They can go to a bar with friends. They can go shopping. They could take up a hobby or something. But try to retain a little piece of life that you can nurture yourself. Because, you know, as a parent, you're all about nurturing your kids. But it has to start with you. If you're drained, it's like, you know, what, driving a car with your kids in it to get them somewhere without any fuel. You need that fuel in order to get them somewhere. So we have to think long term. But then what we really have to do is to think short term. So, OK, I understand long term self-care. What about in the moment when my kid's done something? They've really pushed their bu my buttons. I've had a really rough week. I really feel like I'm going to explode. What the heck do I do to stop that happening? So this will be different for everybody. And we brainstorm lots of different ideas from really basic, leave the room, go somewhere and breathe for two minutes. You know, it can be quite powerful just closing your eyes and focusing on each breath in and out. I talk about um, imagine somebody that you really respect as a parent who seems to be naturally calm and naturally kind of has it together. 
and imagine you're wearing them almost like a skin suit like imagine stepping into them and thinking what must it be like for them inside and picturing almost putting that suit of this naturally calm person on when you feel like you're about to lose it there's also something called mind-minded parenting which is when you feel really angry and at the, the point where you're most about to lose it and scream or spank your kid imagine how they feel so it comes right back to the empathy if you imagine how somebody else is feeling and normally that's really bad upset you know re- you know not good that really changes how you act towards them so actually even if you're having an argument with your partner even adult to adult trying to think okay right i'm really good about to lose it with you i'm so angry but i'm just going to try and take 20 seconds to think about how you're feeling right now yeah, there's all sorts of different techniques. You know, one of them is you can put sort of hair ties on your um, wrist and each time you go through an hour without losing your temper, you move it onto the other hand and you aim to get like eight of them on the other hand each day. I quite like stickers and rewards for parents as well. It's like, you know, high five, you made it through today without shouting, have a mm-hmm. parenting sticker. That's delightful. <laughs> Do you know, it, 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 the whole thing here is it's individual. You have to find something that works for you. For me, just I have to just get away from them. And I'll shut myself in a room for a couple of minutes. So throughout the book, you help parents, um, as you say, put themselves in their kids' shoes and understand not only how the child is feeling at the moment, but why they misbehaved or pushed a boundary in the first place. Um, Can you give us some examples of why kids act out? So this is what really differentiates gentle discipline with traditional discipline. Traditional discipline doesn't consider how the child is feeling or why they've acted in a certain way. It just focuses on trying to extinguish the behavior. You can't extinguish the behavior unless you get rid of the root cause. So let's imagine you have just had a new baby and you have a two and a half year old. Two and a half year old hasn't particularly coped well with the adjustment. You know, this is a really common scenario. Mm-hmm. Maybe they've, they're, when, when you're not looking, maybe they're pinching the baby. Or maybe they're taking it out on you and they've started hitting you. Or maybe they're whining lots or having lots of tantrums. Or maybe they're just, you know, they're used to sleep all night and now they're just getting up every hour and crying. And it's, you know, whatever. They, their behavior tends to regress an awful lot. And quite often they can get very angry and very violent. So traditionally people would think, okay, well, I have to either punish them every time they do something naughty or ignore them. Sometimes people suggest when they do something naughty, but praise them and heap on the rewards when they do something good. And actually, I was in the store this afternoon and I heard there's a mum walk past me with, I think, a three or four year old. And the three or four year old little boy was crying. And I heard the mum say, no, you didn't sleep all night in your room. I'll only buy you a gift if you sleep all night in your room. You stay in your room tonight and we'll come back tomorrow and get you a gift. So when we're considering that toddler with a new sibling or that little boy in the store today not sleeping in his own room, buying a gift or punishing them doesn't consider why. Why is the toddler acting like that? Can you imagine how difficult that transition is for the toddler? You know, for two and a half years, they've been the center of the parent's universe. All of a sudden, they've had no input on when they wanted a new sibling. A new baby comes along. And instantly the attention they get from the parents drops probably by half, if not more, from the mum, particularly if she's breastfeeding. And they're, they're basically saying, look, please see me. Please love me. I really miss you. I, lots of people say they're being naughty. I think when they have a new sibling, a better word to describe how they're feeling is grief. So knowing they're feeling all this, why would you punish them? Why would you not think I can see you're really hurting? 
I'm going to try and fix that. I'm going to try and get back some special time with just me and you without the baby around. I'm going to really work on showing you I love you just as much as before, not just telling you, because I know you need to see and feel it, not just hear it. The little boy in the store, he wouldn't sleep in his own room. He was scared. What's he scared of? How can I help him work through those fears? What can I do to help him feel more confident in his room? Can I slow the process down much more? so that he has true confidence and independence. You know, you can't get confidence and independence from buying a gift. We're going to take a quick break. Don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Sarah Ockwell-Smith, author of Gentle Discipline, who's talking to us about why kids misbehave or um, that's even such a parent-focused way of thinking of it, why they do what we don't want them to do. So... Uh, Sarah, let's talk about what's wrong with some uh, familiar disciplinary methods. Um, we, we've already talked a bit about uh, corporal punishment, but you're also addressing these uh, reward and punishment schemes. Yeah. So let's think of a, a really common punishment would be timeout. So if a kid does something wrong, you put them in timeout. You say, you're going to stay there for, often people say a minute for every year. So let's say you've got a five-year-old. You're going to stay there for five minutes. I want you to sit quietly and think about what you did wrong. Think about how you made that little boy feel when you pinched him. Think about what you could do to behave better next time. The really big problem with this is it presumes that that five-year-old has thinking processes that an adult has. It presumes they have hypothetical thoughts, i.e. they can think about what they could do differently in the future. It presumes that they have a really good amount of empathy, i.e. that they understand how the other child feels. It presumes that they have rational and logical thought, that they can understand why they're there and why they did. Actually, we know at five years, they can't really do any of those. Empathy to a degree, yes, but hypothetical thought, for instance, doesn't really kick in until about 11. So understanding we've put them in this time out, they, they really, at most, they're going to sit there and be quiet because they quickly learn that actually the only way I'm allowed out of here and mum and dad calm down again is if I stand here quietly. So it doesn't work. But also a lot of the time kids misbehave because of a disconnection with their parents. So it could be that the mum's had a new baby. It could be that, you know, one of the parents has gone back to work. Maybe dad's in the military. Maybe that the kids just started school. And a lot of behavior, even in the short term, it could be that one of the parents is having a conversation with a friend and it's just going on for too long and the kid feels that they're not getting any attention. They're going to desperately try to get that attention in any way that they can, even if it's negative attention. So when you put them in time out, what happens is you're saying, okay, I can see you really need this attention. So I'm going to fix this by punishing you, by giving you even less attention and more disconnection. You know, it makes no sense. If a child needs more connection, why on earth would we not give them more connection? Why would we punish them by disconnecting even more? So on the other hand, you know, punishment, we can understand. I think a lot of people can understand why spanking, yelling and even time out isn't good. What people tend to struggle with more is, well, what the heck is wrong with being nice and giving them a reward? You know, heaping on the praise, giving them a gift if they do well. The problem with rewards is they're, in a sense, if our kids don't get a reward, they're punished because they're punished by not getting it. 
But what's more worrying about rewards is that we know that they work on something called extrinsic motivation. So extrinsic motivation means that you're getting the child to do something because there is something externally being offered or basically bribing them. In order for a child to repeat the behavior and act in the way that you want them to, you need to increase something called intrinsic motivation, which is internal motivation, the sort of desire that just comes from within or altruism. You want them to do something because they love you and they like helping you and it feels good. When you reward a child, time and time again, the research has shown you work on increasing extrinsic motivation and you actually damage intrinsic motivation. So there's quite a famous study where kids were split into two groups and they were told, I will have this stack of coloured paper and I'd like you to sort this stack of coloured paper, all different colours, into individual piles of individual colours. You'll be doing this for sick children in the local children's hospital. And the other group was told exactly the same. And this time they were told, and if you do this, you'll get a reward when you finished it. And I think it was like a candy or lollipop or something. So both kid, both groups of kids finished. The ones that had no reward, just the intrinsic desire to help the sick kids. The kids who were offered a reward also finished the task. When they repeated this, but again, did exactly the same task. But initially, the kids who were offered the reward were asked to do the same task, but the reward was no longer an offer. They were significantly slower and some didn't even do it. You know, and this isn't just one study. It re repeats time and time again. If you reward a kid for doing something, they're going to be far less likely to do it for you next time unless you keep rewarding them. So if you have a three or four year old, some candy might do it. You know, I have a nearly 16 year old. He wants cash. <laughs> it, it, it doesn't work with keep on using stickers. It gets progressively bigger and bigger. And you create what I call an if then child, a child that says, hmm. if I do this, then what will you give me? And that, you know, that's not what you want to create. You want kids to help because they're part of the family. It's expected of them and they love you and care about you because you love and care about them. It, everything comes back to that compassion, that empathy and that respect. So you use an intervention mnemonic space, uh, S-P-A-C-E. Tell us about that. So the idea behind space is when parents are feeling really pressured, really angry, their kids are really pushing the button. The idea is to just take a moment and remind yourself of a few really key points of gentle discipline. So it's the idea is putting a space in between the child's behavior and the parent's discipline or reaction. So the first letter S stands for stay calm. You know, try and remember above all else, your child right now is looking at you to learn how to react and how to respond when somebody's angry with them. The next one is to have proper expectations. So what I mean by that is to just make sure that you're not expecting behavior of that child that is actually way beyond their years. So for instance, if you have a teenager and they've lost their temper really quickly, you know, maybe they've cursed at you or something, it's actually really normal and really common of a teenager because they don't have good levels of impulse control. Impulse control is the last thing to connect up in the brain. We shouldn't really expect adult-like impulse control until the early to mid-20s. So am I expecting too much of this kid for you know what their brain is capable of? The next letter A means to have an affinity with your child. That just means try to get that connection. Try to empathize. Try to remember that you're on the same team. You have the same goal. Next letter C means to connect and contain emotions. What I mean by that is be the adult. 
You know, if your child has all these big emotions that they're really struggling with, you're the one that has the grown up brain, the connected brain. You need to kind of share your wisdom and share your capabilities with your child to help them to calm down. The last letter E means to explain, set a good example. So what I mean by this is when things have calmed down, you can't have this conversation when the child is in the middle of a tantrum or really screaming or, you know, because they're in fight or flight mode. When you're really, really angry, you can't hear what somebody's saying to you. You know, it might be the best advice in the world, but you've got to wait for that cortisol, for that stress hormone to drop a little bit. And when it does, then they can listen. So when things are calm, when you've worked through everything else, you explain to the child what it was that you're upset with, what it was that they could, what it is that they could do differently next time. And again, we're back where we started with the staying calm. You're setting a good example. Once again, you're role modeling and teaching them what they could do better next time. And along with that, you you talk about self-esteem. Can you touch on that? Yeah, so there are some, in the book I talk about um, some main reasons why children are more likely to misbehave. You know, obviously I don't know exactly why, but there seem to be common themes. If a child doesn't have very good self-esteem, you get into this kind of horrible cycle where they may misbehave because of it, and quite often... The response they get from adults, not just their parents, can make their self-esteem worse. So that increases the poor behavior. You know, this is a really common cycle that you see in schooling, in education. But if the child has low self-esteem, that can often manifest as a lot of anger or a lot of um, violent behavior. Understanding that actually beneath all of this is a child who doesn't feel good about themselves, a child who doesn't feel happy or confident happy with themselves you've got to i can get help them to feel better about themselves you've got to make the child feel good basically if a child feels bad they're more likely to act bad instead of trying to make them feel worse by punishing them or if when they fail to get the reward you need to try and make them feel better try to help them feel better about themselves and in a lot of cases you just naturally extinguish the behavior that you're not happy with I was going to ask how gentle discipline methods can be applied in places where kids are answering to adults who aren't their parents, like educational settings. Or for example, my toddler is at daycare. Can the daycare teachers do this when instead of being at home where there's more parents than kids, because we're very fortunate, um, they're they're in this uh, environment where there's 10 toddlers running around, two or three teachers, totally overwhelmed. Uh, how, how, how are these methods sort of accl- applicable to a situation like that? Well, A lot of what I talk about is actually really just based on good teaching practices. So I'm hopeful that the teachers, you know, whatever age kids they're working with, they know this. They know how to get the best out of of their students, whether their students are two or whether they're 18. It's again, it's once about having that mutual respect. It's about having the compassion and having kindness and role modeling. So if, you know, if you have a really shouty teacher who is yelling at her class all of the time or tries to teach them out of fear, you know, tries to scare them into not misbehaving, the kids aren't going to behave. If you think back to when you were at, you know, whether it was daycare, whether it was school, if you remember that early, who your favorite teacher was, I'm sure there'll be somebody who was calm, who was kind, somebody who was a good listener, maybe somebody with a good sense of humor, but most importantly, somebody who would have a good rapport with their students. So ultimately, you know, we're just wanting anybody in an educational childcare setting to try to 
be that person. It is harder to use the specifics when you've got 10 or even 20 or 30 kids to look after. And sometimes in education, particularly as children get older and schooling, it's really hard because the teachers don't have time to get to know the individual students and their home life. But I think, you know, there's always some things you can do. I talk in the book about if something gets quite hard, turn it into something playful. So if you've if you've got a kid who regular teaching methods or regular discipline methods aren't getting through to, you've got to try and build that bond and that rapport with them. Try to think of something more playful to get them to do what they want to do. So, you know, if you've got daycare and the toddlers won't tidy up, sing a tidy up song, make it fun. Change the way you're doing things a little bit. So it's harder, but absolutely not impossible. And actually, do you know what? This would be the ideal for a perfect school or a perfect daycare. How do you address parents who think that uh, punishment is the only way to get kids to behave or to respect adults? I hear respect and and discipline sort of put together a lot. Janet, I think sometimes, sadly, there are some parents that aren't in a place to hear this sort of advice and I, I wish that my work was for everybody but it, it sadly it isn't those people who perhaps aren't so set in their ways um i found it easier to get them to put themselves in their child's place and to think you know if if you're at work and you've done something really wrong how would you like your boss to respond to you? So you've slipped up, you've done something wrong, you know you've done something wrong, you're not proud of it, you know, maybe you've tried to cover it up. What would you rather your boss did? Would you rather that your boss punished you, sent you home from work for a week without pay, made you stand in a corner in front of all of your work colleagues, maybe they got a cane and switched your bottom? Or would you rather they said, come into my office, okay, right, let's talk about this, what went wrong? How did this happen? How do you think you can make it right? Is there something that I can help you with that we could work together to make it right? You know, the, the ridiculous thing is we don't want to be treated in the way that we treat our children. Sadly, this comes back to when we were speaking earlier. Lots of people subconsciously reenact their own childhood. There's something called cognitive dissonance, which is a psychological way of protecting ourselves. So if we hear information that could be quite painful to us because maybe it's bringing up things from our childhood or our past that could be really hurtful, we either could respond to it and say, okay, I understand what you're saying. This is going to be really uncomfortable for me to work through because I've got to change a lot, but I'd like you to make things better. Or alternatively, cognitive dissonance kicks in when you basically try to attack the message and the messenger. You try to ridicule it and try to rubbish it and very often get quite angry and very dismissive because actually it does really ring true, but it's just too painful and too difficult to take on board and change right now. And I get a lot of cognitive dissonance. I get a lot of people attacking me and not even what I say, but sort of attacking me as a person. When they attack me as a person, I know that that really is cognitive dissonance and they haven't got any other argument. But, you know, I, I, I wish it was for everybody. I do think there are some people who the cognitive dissonance and the pain is just too much to undo decades and generations worth of authoritarian or quite harsh parenting. So what's your vision of uh, an ideal parent-child interaction, disciplinary interaction? An equal footing, you know, mutual respect, 
having fun. You know, I've, I've made this sound quite academic. You know, in reality, it's it's about having fun, having a laugh, playing games, having a good connection. It's also about not trying to be perfect. So I don't want people to be scared of getting it wrong. I talk in the book about imagine you have a ratio each day of 70% you can nail this stuff and get it right. And 30% of the time you can just mess up. You can use if then bribery. You can, you know, give them stickers. You can maybe yell a little bit. As long as you keep it to under 30% of your parenting responses and your discipline. 70% 70% of the time, if you if you kind of stay on track and you're mindful and you're gentle and you're really doing your best, I think really that's better for people to aim for rather than trying to be this perfect parent, which just simply doesn't exist. So what I'd like to see is, yes, that great relationship with parent and child, but I'd actually like to see parents being less hard on themselves. I work and speak to so many parents who say to me, Sarah, I can't do this. I'm not good enough. I'm not a natural earth mother. I'm not a naturally calm dad. This doesn't come easy to me. It must come easy to you. But I I don't think this is for me. And it's like, do you know what? This doesn't come easy to me. My mum was a yeller. She yelled at me. My default setting is yelling. I have to work hard every day not to yell. And sometimes I don't manage it. But when I do yell, I don't beat myself up about it. I think, right, okay, I've yelled, but let's move on. So it's being kinder to ourselves, and that brings back the whole idea of self-care. We have to do emotional self-care as well as physical self-care and stop trying to be perfect all the time. Well, it seems like a book filled with sage, empathetic advice. We've been talking with Sarah Ockwell-Smith. You could find her book, Gentle Discipline, in stores right now. Sarah, thanks so much for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you for speaking with me. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot talks about BNN's first quarter numbers and a publisher's decision to ignore the New York Times bestseller list. Stay tuned. Hi, I'm David Handler, the author of The Girl with the Kaleidoscope Eyes, and you are listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. Today, PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot is here to tell us, for starters, all about how BNN did in the first quarter of 2017. Hi, Jim. Hey, Rose. How are you? Doing well, thank you. So uh, these numbers from Barnes Noble are not too good. Uh, I think that sums it up pretty well. Uh, Not too good. And especially in what we focused on, it was the top line. You know, sales were down over 6%. Mm. And it's part of the continuing trend that, you know, sales have gone down for for a number of years now. And people are looking for signs of a turnaround. And what about the bottom line? Well, the bottom line is, is something to be... Um, optimistic about, if you will. I mean, they did improve the bottom line, and ironically enough, <laughs> uh, one of the main reasons was that uh, they keep on cutting their losses at Nook. Um, so you could say Nook, improvements at Nook sort of helped Barnes & Noble uh, the most recent quarter after, you know, really dragging them down for a number of years. But the, the, the leadership there knows, you know, you can't cut your way to uh, to growth. And if to have a really sustainable business going forward, they're going to have to find a way to improve the top line. What were some other highlights of the call and of, uh, of what was discussed there? Or well, well, the most interesting thing was um, 
that during the conference call with the uh, analyst, uh, their new CEO, whose name I really can't pronounce too much, Demos Panarios, talked about becoming, starting to try to open more stores than they're closing, uh, maybe within the 18-month period. Um, I think as anybody who follows Barnes & Noble at all knows, they've been closing stores on a pretty regular basis since um, oh, a number of years going back. And so what he said was that uh, they really hope that sometime in fiscal 2019, which starts next May, that they'll well, they might still close some stores, and I'm sure they will, that they hope hope to open more stores than they're closing. And so uh, we, we there's another uh, topic for discussion here, and this is about bestseller lists and a certain publisher that uh, doesn't kind of kind of want to deal with New York Times bestseller lists. Yeah, Mark, this goes back a long way. Um, Regnery Publishing is the one who uh, sent out an announcement to its authors and um, some employees that they're no longer going to be using the the New York Times bestseller list as a measurement for getting bonuses and that sort of thing. Um, And their their complaint was that, um, well, Bregnery publishes a lot of well-known conservative titles and that uh, the Times list uh, favors liberal books over conservative books. Um, Bregnery's made that charge on and off for a while, and so have some other publishers of conservative titles. But, you know, tied to that is the whole methodology behind the Times list. Um, and I think everybody in publishing knows, and I'm sure you guys know, that um, the Times just does not tell you the source of their list. Um, you know, it's some sort of magic formula or secret sauce thing. Um and so it does open them up to, I think, you know, charges that are worth looking at. I mean, if it's not going to tell us who's supplying your numbers, well, how do we know who's supplying the numbers? Right. I was talking with Rachel Deal about this a bit last week regarding uh, a book that was uh, fraudulently put on the bestseller list after the author and their uh, and people working for them apparently bought 18,000 copies trying to call around to different stores saying, are you a store that reports to the New York Times? So this is, this is clearly something that people are, are really eager to figure out, uh, one way or another, whether it's because, uh, they want to game the system or because they don't trust the system. The rationale they give, and, it, and it's a fair one to a certain degree, but, you know, not to, you know, toot our own horn here, Ragnar is Switching, uh, you know, their benchmark list from uh, the Times to the PW list, mm-hmm. and the PW list is, you know, based on book scan data, and there, um, you know, you know what you're there, what's being measured. Um, you know, book scan has like eighty to eighty-five percent of print units, and you know, Barnes and Noble's in there, you know, Amazon's in there, you know, Walmart is in there. Um, there's uh, hundreds of independents in there, and they have a whole. They have a list of everybody who supplies the data from them. Although I'm not sure they list all the independents. Um, so, you know, it's there in black and white, and you know where it's coming from. So, you know, um, one of the things Gregory talked about was, well, look, maybe a lot of the stores 
the independent stores they have are in urban areas or something, which might skew more liberal or something. So, you know, uh, you know, do I think that the Times has a little bias? I don't know, but I certainly think the methodology, uh, you know, could be called into question. And we've certainly seen our share of conservative books on the bestseller list, and right. we talk about this every week. And uh, definitely, if if somebody something comes out from a big conservative author, it's going to hit our list very reliably. Right. Well, Redry didn't deny that they've had books on the list, and they've had books at number one. Right. But they think um, some of their books should have been placed higher. And I guess one thing that really you know, upsets them that some books that they think are selling well never make the list at all because don't forget i mean they subscribe to book scan so they can see right. the units sold in total and then when they see one of their books that according to book scan sold more books than some other title which is actually on the list and theirs isn't if i was them i would probably complain too right so they're switching over to the PW list. Um, and I think this brings up a thing that a lot of people don't know about if they're not deep in publishing, that uh, authors can get bonuses and things like that um, based on whether they hit a bestseller list. Right. I think quite a few um, contracts include that um, that clause in there. But I was actually a little surprised. Uh, Regnery was saying some of their like PR people, marketing people, also have uh, you know stuff in their contract that they'll get a little extra money if if they hit the Times list. So yeah. now they'll get that extra money when they hit the uh, the PW list. Mm. Right, right. Well, we'll certainly keep an eye out for that, and uh, it's it's an interesting thing to keep in mind as we look down the list, see who's on it and uh, who stays on it, especially uh, for for more than a week or so. Uh, it's uh, an interesting factor. Right, yeah, no, definitely a busy, a busy start for the first uh, first week after Labor Day. Yes, indeed, and I, I'm our bestseller list has a lot of movement on it this week too. So definitely, yeah, we like into to see the, that getting into the big <laughs> fall season. Well, thank you, right? Thank you very much, Jim. It's always great to have you on the show. Anytime. And now a final word from our sponsors. Beyond the headlines, beyond the routine, beyond the book, I'm Chris Keneally, host of Copyright Clearance and his podcast series, Beyond the Book. And I'm Andrew Albany, senior writer at Publishers Weekly. Join us each Friday for a publishing news week in review podcast unlike any other. Learn all the breaking news and catch the best analysis on developments in the book trade, copyright law, and much more. You already know business as usual. Now go Beyond the Book. Listen to the free series and subscribe at beyondthebook.com. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another outstanding author interview. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcast on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode stream live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode, giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 